0: For those of you that were with us, and if you weren't with us, in Exodus 20, you may not know this, but the Ten Commandments are in there. And the Ten Commandments are these ten laws, commands by God, not suggestions, commandments. And these are the things that if you'll do them, you can live by them. And you might say, well, I've read the Ten Commandments, and it seems like that the commandments actually bring forth a lot of death. But the reality is, God's standard... Uh, will always kill the us in us. God's standard is meant to help us recognize that God is not like us at all, that he's holy, that he's other. And so as we read God's law, we looked at the first four, which are all commandments that have to do with our relationship to God, this vertical relationship. And once we have a relationship with God, a real relationship with God, it should affect the relationships that we have with other human beings, no matter if they're in our family or if they're in a different country, a different race, uh, even different politics, that should change the way that we relate to one another. And so God changes our hearts. He actually, in the New Testament, writes his law on our hearts so that we don't do it just because we feel like we ought to, but instead we do it because our heart wants to. We have new desires. They've been placed there by the Holy Spirit. And we recognize all that God has done for us. And then in response to that, everything that we do for him is really just us saying thank you. And so as we read through the law today, I want to encourage you, some of this is confusing for me too. Some of this is new. It's the first time I've taught through it, but it's also, there's some cultural clashing that goes on. But in chapter 20, verse 18, it says, Now all the people who were there on the day at Sinai where God spoke audibly, they witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stayed afar off. And then they said to Moses, this this kind of reveals why they stayed far off, You speak with us, and we will listen. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. See, the presence of God there was so palpable that it was overwhelming, and it undid them. They were undone in God's presence. By the way, just listening to something yesterday, and this guy referred to the the time when Peter, James, and John went out on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there... God revealed that Jesus was more than just a man. He was transfigured and he became white and bright light. And he was there standing with Elijah and Moses. And as he was standing there, Peter is much like me, not knowing what to say, he spoke, right? You ever done that? You didn't know what to say, so you talked. He didn't know what to say, so he said something that came to us. We should build tabernacles. Let's build tabernacles so we can all hang out here. And what's interesting is the father speaks audibly from heaven. And he says, this is my son, which he has said this before, by the way, at Jesus baptism, he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, another mountain, kind of like Mount Sinai, he adds another phrase. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Uh, Don't speak. Listen. Peter, I know you don't know what to say. That's okay. Don't talk. Just listen to my son. And what's interesting is, uh, actually, um, another person had an interesting interaction. It was Jesus' mother, Mary. And Do you know the last recorded words that Mary said in the Bible were, whatever Jesus tells you, do that. And so all of these things point to God speaking to his people And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but don't let God speak to us because when he speaks to us, we might die. By the way, the living word of God is meant to kill you. Did you know that? That sounds kind of rough. God's word is meant to kill you. It's a double-edged sword. It's a weapon. Yes, it's a weapon against the flesh. It's a, a weapon against the world. There's promises in there that we get to partake of and we get to benefit from. But the word of God is actually meant to kill our flesh so that the spiritual life can live. We have this dichotomy within us, the war between the flesh and the spirit, and God's always using his word to kill the flesh so that we may not sin. And that's what he says in the next verse. Moses said to the people, Don't fear, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you. He's rooting the you out of you, he's turning up the heat. And that his fear may be before you. The fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord that brings the hatred of sin. He says that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. And I love this. So the people, still not quite sure, they stood afar off. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. See, Moses had already been tested many times. And he knew the best place, the safest place to be was in the presence of God. And so these laws that he's giving them, the first 10 commandments are the broad brush strokes. But how do we apply these laws? And that's where we begin today. In verse 22, he's getting ready to tell them, here's how I am to be approached. I want you to approach me. That's why I brought you to Mount Sinai. But later you're going to approach me to offer up offerings and sacrifices and so he says, Here's how to make an altar. Verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. So they're not to be, you shall have no idols, no other gods before me. Sound familiar? That's what he said in chapter 20 last week. And then he says, make an altar of earth, you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. So the altar is to be made from dirt, from earth, from things on the earth. Verse 25, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, In other words, don't carve it, don't chisel it, just use it as it is. How are we going to perfect anything that God's already made? For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. So as you approach me, make an altar, and an altar was something that was supposed to be made from earth, or we see here rock. But when you make it, I want you to make it from what the elements that are already there. We can't create anything. You ever notice that? We only alter what God has created. But why dirt? Why earth? Well, what are we made out of? We're made out of dirt. We're made out of earth. He formed man from the dust of the earth. And so it's interesting that the altar where the gifts are supposed to be laid in order to be sacrificed to God, we're made from the same thing almost like our lives are to be an altar you ever notice that we don't build altars anymore that's because we are the altar that romans 12 says i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable before god which is your reasonable service it's a response, it's thankfulness to the Lord for all that he's done. And by doing so, when your life becomes an altar, where when your life becomes a place where sacrifice is made, you're actually going to prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. That's powerful. That a life that's surrendered to God actually reveals God. And that's what the altar does. And so he says here, I want you to make this altar this way. Notice he says, only where I tell you to put an altar. Not just anywhere. God's to be approached in the place that he makes his name known. Now, in the beginning, they're going to have this tabernacle. And it's going to move all over the place, but the altar's going to go with it. And then later, he's going to choose a city to make his name rest there. For all generations in Jerusalem. And there will be a temple there. When God is worshiped, he's to be worshiped at this one altar because there's not many ways to God. There's only one. And even that one place to sacrifice, that one place to worship, it all points to the one person whom we will see Jesus in, the only way to God. What's interesting is in verse 26, it says, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar. And he gives a very... uh, obvious reason. He says that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Now, they weren't as advanced as us. They didn't have undergarments. And so when they would wear their cloaks, uh, if they walked up steps in front of you, fill in the blank. And so I won't draw a picture. You guys already did. I know I did. You know, um, the bottom line is that you would see their bottom. And the reality is, by the way, when you approach God, when you approach God, if you try to build a way to get there, your works, anything other than just a simple altar, what you're going to find is that your works won't stand the test of being in the presence of God, and you'll be shown to be naked. You will be naked. You will be undone. What happened in Genesis? They sinned. They, they disobeyed the one commandment, don't eat from that tree. They did it, and what was the immediate result of that? They realized they were naked, their nakedness was exposed, and when their nakedness was exposed, they hid. God says, Don't be in hiding, approach me the way that I say to approach me. But when you do that, don't make steps. By the way, there's one time in the Bible that says that you actually there actually is a way to heaven. And it calls it a ladder. Jacob was worshiping. He laid his head on a rock. He had a dream. There was this ladder where angels were ascending and descending from heaven. And and in John chapter 1, Jesus said, I am that ladder. That there's no stairway to heaven like the song says. But there is a ladder. And it's Jesus Christ. So, now let's get into something you all are familiar with. Let's talk about slaves. Let's talk about slavery, Right? We need some laws to deal with our slavery problem. These are the judgments which you shall set before them. These are the guidelines for judges. Now, I know I have at least one lawyer in the crowd, but law is a way that we govern society in order to deal with relationships. It's really not about the laws. It's how we relate to each other. How do we settle disputes? Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, they had judges. And the judges didn't just come up with whatever they wanted. The judges would have to mete out justice based on the laws that are already there. And so these laws are going to concern civil disputes in Israel. So, chapter 2, excuse me, 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself... He shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So if you buy a Hebrew servant, now, why would you buy somebody that is from your nation? Well, some of the people would get into debt. And so when someone's in debt, they have to have a way to get out of debt. And since the government wouldn't do it, you would go to a fellow Hebrew and say, hey, I've got this debt, I need it paid off, and I have nothing to give in retribution or or in exchange for you paying off my debt, so i 'm going to give you me i 'm going to be your servant until my debt is paid off. Well, you could imagine an owner would kind of get used to having a servant, and eventually they 'd say uh, you 're just always my servant there 's no end Well, you you know when you originally paid off the debt, money was worth this much now it 's because of inflation, things have gotten more expensive. So you really owe me 10 years, not just six. It was six back then, but the dollar's not worth the same anymore. Well, God said in his law, no, there's there's a limit. So six years is the max. And after six years, you get to go free. Sounds kind of like the Sabbath, right? Six days, you shall do all your work. And on the seventh, you shall rest. So your debt's paid off after six years. If he comes in by himself though, If he's single, then he shall go out by himself. He cannot own anything while being a slave. But if he comes in married, and and she's there too, he gets to leave still married. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. Not great news, right? But he only has that wife because it was given to him by his master. So she's technically still his property. And so he shall go out by himself. But here's the caveat. Here's the loophole. It's not a loophole. It's a law. He says, if the servant plainly says, you know what? I love my master. He's done way better with my life than I ever did with my own life. I came in with nothing. Now I have a wife. I have children. I don't want to leave. Where where else can I go? I own nothing. I have all my debts paid. Uh, I don't come out with any bad debt. I'm just going to give my life to serve this man who's made it so good. And so he could choose at that point. Verse 6, he says, Then his master shall bring him to the judges, those who are the leaders of the town. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost." And his master shall take an awl. Now, you've seen awls before. You may not know it. Uh, some of you have used it for all kinds of stuff. It was in the junk drawer. Uh, it's actually meant for putting a hole in leather. But some of you have used it as an ice pick. Hey, sweet, an ice pick. And then you've destroyed your freezer. You've poked a hole in it. But all that to say, they would take an awl. They would take the servant's ear and put it on the doorpost at the front of the house. they put a hole in it. And then sometimes they would put a gold earring in there. And that was to signify that you were not your own, but that you were redeemed with a price. And now you're not just a slave. You're actually, by choice, choosing to serve your master forever. Basically until you die. And so they had the choice to do this. But many, maybe Americans, maybe Romans, would think that this is an absolutely heinous idea. But what's interesting is it is a lot like our relationship with Jesus. We're not called to be uh, employees of Jesus, where we can choose to come and go as we please. We're not called uh, to just be sons and daughters. We're we're servants. And if anyone would become the greatest in the kingdom of God, Mark chapter nine, verse 35, then he must become the servant of all. But that servitude starts with serving the one who purchased your freedom. Who paid your debt? Who paid your sin debt? Jesus. He paid it all. That's the song. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Are those words or is that your life? It's meant to be your life, not just your words. And not because you have to to earn your salvation. If you're truly thankful and you recognize what God has done for you, Serving God becomes a joy because you were serving Satan. And he's a harsh taskmaster, and he does not pay. He only takes, he never gives. Satan doesn't give you no wife. Satan doesn't provide for your needs. He only sucks you up until your life is gone. And so they could become bond slaves. Verse 7, and if a man sells his daughter, far be it from me, right? Who would sell their daughter? Well, this is the idea of a dowry. If a man would sell his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. If He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. So if a man were to buy a servant woman... It would be the idea of buying or paying a dowry for a bride. And she would be coming in under the understanding that she would become a wife. But if he finds some sort of uncleanness in her, or she doesn't please him, then he has the option to let her be redeemed, maybe bought back by her family. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. So even as a slave, sold into slavery, maybe to pay some debt, maybe to get one more person out of the household so you don't have to pay to feed them anymore. Uh, See, the sons could be used for laborers, but the daughters oftentimes, to keep them delicate, they would betroth them to husbands, number one, so that they could have a family, but number two, uh, so they didn't have to feed them anymore. (laughs) Just plain and simple. They didn't have a health care plan until you're, 30,000 years old, you know, that you couldn't stay in the house and continue to be provided for, and so a practical way to do that is that they would pay a dowry to the to the father, he would get a dowry, and then she would be betrothed to a husband, or in some cases, the son of the man of that house, the master. It says here that he shall not have no right to sell her to a foreign people, so this was to protect them from being sold into other nations since he has dealt deceitfully with her if he doesn't actually marry her. Verse 9, If he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. So he, she essentially becomes a daughter to him. Now verse 10, If he takes another wife, I would highly advise against this, and I believe the Bible does as well. Many people get confused in the Old Testament because some of the, the, the main characters have multiple wives. But it was not meant to be so from the beginning. Even Jesus quoted Genesis, For this reason a a man shall leave his father and mother and be cleaved or uh, connected to his wife permanently. But in the case, many times, we see that the Bible is not condoning multiple wives or multiple husbands even, but it's just stating the fact that it does happen. So it says there, If he takes another wife, then he has a duty to her to provide for her food and enough clothing and her marital rights. Some of your translations might say uh, the physical relationship that goes with marriage. By the way, anything outside of marriage, physically or otherwise, it's fornication, it's adultery. But here he says, inside of marriage, if you take another wife, you shall make sure she has plenty of food, And plenty of clothing, and that her marital rights are given to her. And if he does not provide for all three of these, then she shall be able to go free from that relationship without paying any money. She doesn't have to be redeemed. And so, all of this again, it's all about relationships, fair treatment of those who are subservient to the master of the house. There's rules, everybody serves somebody. It's like a Bob Dylan song or something. But since everybody serves somebody, God's protecting those who are being served, excuse me, those who are serving, and making sure that their rights are being upheld in the land. So, verse 5 through 6, I want to point out something about this bond slave thing. Because a bond slave is somebody that's no longer a slave because their debt's been paid off by their service. They choose to stay with their master. And what's interesting is they become a servant by choice, no longer because of debt. And so what's interesting about Roman times in the New Testament when Jesus was living is that the Romans were very much like us. They really liked to boast about their freedom. But the one that was born among us, who lived among us, who had the right to, The sovereign right, you might say, to say, I'm free to do whatever I want. The only one that's lived on earth that had that right to have freedom, guaranteed, was Jesus Christ. And I want to point out the thing he chose to do with that freedom is lay it down. He laid down his freedom. So maybe you've heard a lot of chatter lately about, they can do anything to me, but they can't take my freedom. There was a movie you're probably quoting, and I like it too. Uh, but that being said, as believers, the only freedom that we have truly is to be punished for our sin. The only right that we have is to be punished by as sinners. But Jesus Christ laid down his rights so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God, so that we could have a relationship with him and be set free to truly worship God. And so with that being the case, uh, Jesus, I already quoted this first. He said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you have to become the servant of all. And what's interesting is he told his disciples this, knowing full and well they wouldn't get it right away. But also knowing full and well that he had set his face like flint to become, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Isaiah, in chapter 50, in verse 4, Isaiah having a prophecy, an Old Testament yearning, an understanding of what was to come and the, the Messiah that was to come, he says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4, speaking of the Messiah himself, he says, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak to those who are weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. See, Jesus had to hear from the Father as he served on earth. The Lord God, notice this, has opened my ear. Now, Jesus came to earth And he said, I come to do the will of my father. And his ear was always open to what the father's instructions were for him. He says, I only do what I've seen the father doing. But what's interesting about this phrase is where he says, the Lord has opened my ear. The phrase there is actually the same phrase we read in Exodus chapter 21, where when someone becomes a bondservant, their master would take the all. And pierce and open up the skin of the ear. So when he says that, when he says the Lord God has opened my ear, he's saying the Lord has pierced my ear. The Lord has made me his bond slave. Jesus Christ willingly became a bondservant to his father, though he's equal with his father. And yet Philippians 2 said that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, and yet he didn't try to grasp hold of his right to be sovereign God. And it baffles my mind. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and look at this, I became a willing slave, he says, and I was not rebellious. I was willfully serving him in everything. And we know that because he willfully served all the way to the point where he said, Father, if there's any other way for mankind to be redeemed and to be saved, then take this cup of suffering from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And the beauty of that is that he laid down his own will, though I believe he was fully willing He said, I'm going to do the will of the Father. I'm going to lay down my life. He says in verse 6 I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. I'm willing to serve, but I've got a line in the sand that you cannot cross. But Jesus said, I'm willing to serve no matter the cost. And so, verse 12. He who strikes a man, this is a law concerning violence. None of you are violent, but in case you ever had the leanings, here's some laws that God set up to govern his people. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. I think our prisons would have less people in them if we would just take that verse and run with it. It's easy for me to say, I've never struck someone until they've died. But Jesus said, What about murder? We talked about it last week. It's about hatred in the heart, the seatbed for murder. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, in other words, the circumstances caused there to be murder, imagine, if you will, and we'll get this later in the law. You're out chopping wood with your buddy, maybe using a chainsaw. And one of the guys with you is standing at a distance. You're chopping wood and the head of the axe flies off. Hits him in the head just the right way. Kills him on the spot. It's murder. It's death. That's sin. But he says here, if he did not lie in wait, in other words, he didn't mean it. But God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. And later in the law, we'll get into this, there will be cities scattered throughout Israel called cities of refuge. And I love this because there they would go, they'd be safe from whoever would seek vengeance on the person that murdered their relative. They call him the avenger of blood. We might come up with some sort of wrestling team or, you know, like, Superhero called the Avenger of Blood. But here, the Avenger of Blood would be somebody that's just upset. Somebody in their family got killed. I'm going to make it right. They go to seek them out and kill them. And so they would put these cities of refuge everywhere so you could get quickly to a place of sanctuary until you could have a proper trial. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, Then you shall take him from my altar, that he may die. And there was a case of this in 1 Kings chapter 2. The, The head of the army of David, Joab, he was a wonderful military leader. He was ruthless. He went out and did the bidding of his king. But there was a couple of men he didn't like very much. And he thought that they were, you know, kind of trying to be spies against David. And so he took it upon himself... To kill those men, he premeditated their death. We won't get into the circumstances today. But David saw this as cold blooded murder. He said, There was no reason for them to be killed because of the law. Therefore, you killed them at your own volition. And so, David, for whatever reason, chose not to punish them, but he he laid that responsibility on his son Solomon. So, when David's in his deathbed, he told him, He said, Keep all the commandments. Let the Lord lead your life. Use the wisdom God's given you. And then I've got a couple of unsettled disputes. I want you to take care of Joab. He killed Abner, and can't remember the other guy's name. And he said, I want you to go make that right. Well, he wasn't just saying go out and kill somebody. He was saying need out the punishment due to him because of this passage. Do you know what Joab did when he found out Solomon wanted him dead? He fled to the tabernacle and he grabbed the altar and he hugged it and he said, I'm not leaving from here. He was seeking God's mercy. By the way, do you know that you can experience God's forgiveness and yet still have to reap the consequences of your sin? Joab did on that day. Knowing the law, Solomon said, Go in and grab him and mete out justice. He needs to die. He killed in cold blood, it was premeditated. And so, verse 15, He who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. That would change our society, don't you think? Even if you don't fear your parents, but you know the consequences of striking your parents, uh, it might make you think twice. Actions have consequences. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And notice this, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Interesting, we might not put that on the top ten list of things that should deserve death in our law, would we? But I do believe that if we would take these kinds of commands seriously, it would change our family lives, it would change our society, it would change the law itself. And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, It's interesting because there's this list. I love lists. Anybody else in here like to keep lists? I like those lists. I don't like lists of my sins. You don't either, I take. But what's interesting is it says there in Romans chapter 1 that as society changes, and as men did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, here's the things that they do. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. You talk behind people's backs, whispers. Backbiters. You stab people in the back, might be the modern day translation. Those who hate God. Violent. Proud. We kind of like to be proud about things, but I think there's a pride that God says is sin, actually. Uh, boasters. Inventors of evil things. Notice this one. Doesn't seem to fit, but the law says it does. Disobedient to parents. So we'll stop there because if you go down to the bottom of this list, those who know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things, and disobedient to parents was in there, those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not a spanking, death. Seems kind of harsh. That's how you know how far our society has gone. So back here in Exodus chapter 21, he who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. That's what the law of God says. And so, verse 18, if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be Acquitted. not exactly sure what that means, but he's not guilty. He's not guilty as charged. He's not guilty of his death. He shall only pay for the loss of his time. So during the time that he was injured, during the time that he might have been infirmed for his injury, he's now uh, not able to work and there weren't any programs to provide for your family. there wasn't disability. And so how am I supposed to feed my family? what he says here, the man who hurt him, the man who caused it, is responsible to pay for his loss of time. Might make you think twice before you get into a fist fight. And he shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. Now, we only have one New Testament example, at least that came to my mind, where someone was injured by another person and then needed to be paid for so that they could be thoroughly restored to health, and that was Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, what we have is the the man is hurt by a thief, he's got all of his stuff robbed from him, he's left on the road half dead. And so you would think, if only someone knew the law, and that they the person that harmed him would know the law, he would know that the law says he needs to provide for his healing. Of course, thieves don't do that. People that break laws don't usually follow other laws, right? So instead, by God's grace, a priest, someone who has spent his life judging and studying the law comes by. But knowing the law, but also seeing the man doesn't want to defile himself, so he's got to be clean for worship, so he walks right by. And then a Levite, a servant in the temple, someone else that would know the law of God comes by and takes care of him. No. Passes him by, goes to the other side of the road. But, but then, the Samaritan. The Jews thought the Samaritans were dirty. They were half-breeds. No good for nothing. They would go another day's journey to avoid even going near their territory. But the Samaritan, even though he had somewhere in his family's history mixed religions... He only had the first five books of the law. He knew the books that he had. He knew Exodus. He knew that this man needed to be provided for. He knew that he needed a good neighbor. So like a good neighbor, the Samaritan was there. He picks him up. He cleans his wounds, pours oil on them for healing, anoints him, puts him on his beast of burden, takes him to the nearest inn, Places him inside of the inn, pays for him to be there. He's got nothing. He's helping someone who can't help him back. And then as he's helping him, he nurses him back to health. He leaves him there and he tells the innkeeper, Here's two denarii. Here's enough for what I think it's going to cost to pay for all that he has put on his tab. But when I come back through here, make sure that he's healthy because when I come back through here, I'll pay whatever I owe you on top of this. He paid for him to be completely restored. So when a person strikes a person, this is what's supposed to be done. But I want to point out that the Samaritan actually didn't strike the person. He paid for another man's debt. In the Samaritan, we see Jesus. In the fulfilling of this law, we see Jesus. Jesus never struck anybody. But he paid for our debt. So, verse 20: if a man beats his male or his female servant with a rod, and it was, you could do that, you could discipline them so that he dies under his hand. Can't do that. Too far. It's limiting their ability to discipline. If he does this, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, wow, he shall not be punished for he is his property. So again, a slave owned, not his own. Now, verse 22, if men fight and hurt a woman with child, so two men are fighting, there's someone pregnant in their presence, collateral damage. She accidentally gets injured by one of the men. So that she gives birth prematurely. Yet no harm follows, so the baby's born healthy. He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If I'm, so, so all of this is retribution, right? If there's vengeance to be had, if there's going to be payback for sin that they've experienced, then the life for life, and the eye for an eye, and the tooth for a tooth, it's not prescribed, it's not required. What he's saying is, you deserve to... If, if they have killed someone that you know, if you've been killed, then there should be punishment for that. And if it's cost a life, then a life shall be taken. If it's cost an eye, then an eye shall be taken. But it's not prescribed. It's not saying you have to do this. It's, it's meant there to limit punishment. I have there for you on the screen. Uh, don't get mad, just get even, right? Don't get mad at someone who sins against you. Get even. But when we say, I'm going to get even, do we really mean that? Or do we mean you took an ounce of flesh and I'm going to take enough to where I feel better about it? We never feel better, by the way. And that's why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Or my translation, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Right? Nobody gets away with anything in God's economy. They just don't. Even if they don't get punished in this life, even if in the trial they get acquitted and they shouldn't have, who's the final judge? God himself. And he sits on the throne of judgment. And if they ask for forgiveness in Jesus before they die, they'll be forgiven. But if not, they will be judged eternally. And so the law condemns them, even if man does not. But it's meant to limit punishment, not to extend it, not to prescribe it. But the human heart is such that if we were meant to sit on the judge's bench, and if we were moved or swayed by everything that we experience or see in cases, we would always judge more harshly than if we let God judge. God judges just the right amount every time. So we see the heart of God in Jesus because in Matthew chapter 5, In verse 38, Jesus refers to this passage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus said, and he always quoted the law, and he says, you've heard it said, and then he gives the interpretation. He says, you've heard it said that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what I want to tell you is not to resist an evil person. In other words, don't fight with them. Don't quarrel with them. Don't even take them to the courts. Don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, give them the other one. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, then let them have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you don't turn away if you have the power to lend to them. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that you'll reflect the one who is your Father, that you'll have his character. In your response to their wickedness, they're going to see the kingdom and it's going to kill them. It's going to cut them down. It's going to stop the cycle of sin. Love's going to overcome. Now, some of them are going to take advantage of that. Jesus turned his other cheek and what did they do to it? They slapped it again and again and again and again. For us. See, he wasn't focused on the punishment. He was focused on the one he was taking the punishment for. But that being said, when we follow his example, they get to see Jesus in human flesh. And so, verse 26, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of the eye. He's permanently wounded him. He no longer owes a debt to his master. His master now owes a debt to him. Here you can have your freedom. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, same thing. Let him go free for the sake of his tooth. You rot a line. Righteously let him go. Verse 28. This comes into something you guys are all familiar with. How to deal with oxen that gore people. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned. If its flesh shall not be, excuse me, and its flesh shall not be eaten. So the ox is responsible for being violent. Kill the thing. Put a bullet in it. Get done. It's risking human lives and they are more worth. They have more worth than the animal. But the owner of the ox shall be guiltless. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past, and it's been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it's killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. But if there's imposed on him, the owner of the ox, a sum of money, see, if his ox kills somebody, and he knew it had a tendency to be violent, then he can be put to death for his ox's actions. But if there's imposed on him a sum of money, he shall pay to redeem his life. He can buy his way out of the death sentence. Whatever is imposed on him. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to his judgment, it shall be done to him. Now, a little difference here, verse 32. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So there's a different price on the head of a servant. And if a man... So I'm, I'm going to read the rest of this, and we're going to talk about verse 32. If a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animals shall be his. Now, if one man's ox hurts another's, So that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past, and its owner has not kept it confined, then he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So these laws are all about settling these disputes, and the ox, and all of these things that That have to be settled, they cost or they have worth ascribed to them. We could go into a lot of things here, but I want to take just a moment and talk about this servant. Did you notice that when a servant was killed, they had to deal with the ox but they also could pay to pay, okay, well, you lost your servant, so here's 30 pieces of silver. It'd be like if you went to someone's house and broke their TV and you did, well, here's the money for the TV. But this is a person we're talking about here. But the person is worth what you would pay for a servant. They would buy the servant. And so what I believe that this is about is not actually about the servant. And it's not about what the oxen did, but it's about Jesus. And you might say, how? Well, I don't know if you remember this story, but in Matthew... In chapter 26, as I get there, there was a certain person who sold Jesus. He sold him out. And this person was Judas Iscariot, somebody that Jesus knew personally. And he didn't really agree with what Jesus was doing. He wanted to be great in the world. He wanted to be a part of a kingdom that ruled and reigned. And so since he wasn't getting what he wanted out of Jesus, he sold him out to the Pharisees and the scribes. And of course, you can imagine the, the meeting. Okay, um, I'll give you Jesus, but what are you going to give me in exchange? It's like you're in one of these good uh, goodfellas conversations. And so they said, well, we got to come up with a cost, and I don't really know what people are worth, but I know what the lowest servant's worth, and I don't really want to pay any more than that. So they haggled over the price of Jesus' life. And they they settled on the price 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because to them, he wasn't worth a plug nickel. And they weren't going to go into debt to pay off someone to get Jesus, because all they were going to do with him was kill him. And so they ascribed to him, and what the world sees in Jesus is no worth at all. He's not probably even worth 30 pieces of silver. But to those who have been saved by him, he's priceless. How can you ascribe a cost? You've seen the commercials. They list out all the things. This much, $15. This thing, $20. This thing, $1,000. Your relationship with your family, priceless. Well, what about your relationship with Jesus? What's it worth to you? Judas had spent three years with Jesus, and at the end of it, he was like, eh, 30 pieces of silver is enough. I could buy a slave, or I could pay for Jesus. And and when they ascribed that worth to him, it was actually prophesied. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 through 13, Jesus is prophesied about where it says, ascribe to me, give to me my wages if you want. And his wages were 30 pieces of silver of silver. Judas was being disobedient to the Lord and at the same time fulfilled prophecy to a T. So all of that is to say that even in Judas betraying Jesus, we see that in the law we have the Old Testament concealing of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament we see him revealed in all of his fullness. You might say to me, Why would we spend time talking about an oxen or a person killed or all of these things? But if you search the scriptures, if you read the book of Exodus and all the laws, not just the exciting part of the beginning, but then the laws, what you're going to find is that on every page, Jesus Christ is already foretold about. So that when we see him in the New Testament and he does all of these things, Really, the Levites and the priests and all the religious people and the Israelites and the Jews, they're without excuse because they had the words that were telling them ahead of time, here's what this Messiah is going to look like. He's not going to come as a king. He's going to come as a slave. He's going to come as one that nobody esteems highly. He's going to teach you about loving God first and foremost, and he's going to teach you how to love your neighbor. Not just the way that you interpreted the law, but the way that the law was meant to be interpreted by the lawgiver. And so all of this is about relationships. And they're going into a land full of people that have ideals. They're going into a land full of people with, with ideas of how, how to worship their gods and how to worship even their God. And he's going, look, I don't want you to be living in the land of confusion. I want to give you instruction in righteousness. Right living before me, and right living before your neighbor. So then the lawyers came to him in Luke chapter 10, and they said, who is my neighbor? Because he had just said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And wanting to justify himself, a lawyer came in, because that's what they do. They try to justify the person they're working for. And in this case, he worked for himself. And wanting to justify himself, he said, well, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love like this? And then he told the story of the Samaritan. And basically, your neighbor is whoever's close to you. Whoever you have the opportunity to love, that's your neighbor. So all of this is pointing to the fact that our relationship to God is shown in how we treat others. And later, before God went silent, waiting... For the Messiah to come in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. The way that God wants us to worship him is not by sacrifice, not by offering, not by the blood of animals, not by tithing to the smallest minutia of our our spice gardens. He says, here's what I want you to do. If you want to worship me, this is how I'm to be worshipped. Love your neighbor. Seek justice for those who need justice. Love mercy. Show compassion is what mercy means. And walk humbly before God. Recognize that without Him, you got nothing. But with Him, you have the power to change everybody's life that you have impact on. So the question becomes this morning, are you living a life of rules and regulations because you have to? Or have you been set free to worship God in the way that He desires you to worship? living justly with your neighbor, settling accounts, paying your debts, and then recognizing that your ultimate sin net has been paid all to Jesus you owe. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your justice. We thank you that there were laws and that today we still, in many ways, whether we realize it or not, are governed by laws that were inspired by Moses' law. And Father, rather than kick at it, help us to actually live by the law of the land and in so doing, have right relationships with our neighbors. And in fulfilling the law when no no one else fulfills the law, may people see Jesus. May they see our Father reflected And how when even we do something wrong, we allow you to expose our unrighteous deeds and ask for forgiveness. Man, if we would just simply live righteously, if we would simply own up to our mistakes and our sins and our law-breaking, even though no one saw it, the world would see that we're different and they'd see our Father in heaven and glorify his name. So Father, help us. We want to reflect you In Jesus' name.